Hi, and welcome to Books We Pretend to Read, a podcast that focuses on books that are popular within the tech companies of the Valley, such as the one I work at and my co-host Chuck works at. Uh, In fact, this podcast started kind of as a joke because there's not a week goes by that a colleague doesn't recommend a book for me to read. And I got in the habit of just immediately ordering these books on Amazon. So I'd end up reading a couple chapters, then someone recommend a new book, and I'd start reading that book and put down the first book. And so I now have a library of books that have dust on them because I never finished any of them. So I wanted to solve this in my own life, but I also thought it'd be kind of a cool public service to build a podcast around these books. And to make it even more interesting, I bring in a subject matter expert each week to discuss the book with us. And the expert and the guest has to read the book too. So I hope you enjoy these podcasts. We will be releasing new podcasts every month. Thank you and enjoy. The book today, which I do not have in front of me, which is dumb of me, it's called Future Crimes. Who's it written by, Chuck? Yeah, I thought you throw me under the bus. Because <laughs> I don't have a <laughs> in front of me. Mark, Mark something. Isn't it Mark something? Good, good, good all. Good all. I could Google it, I guess. Anyway, Mark Goodman. It's Goodman. the author. I was, I was very close. <laughs> I get points for that. We're off to a great start. <laughs> <laughs> this is... This is a high-quality production you can expect in preparation. Yeah, this is good. But anyway, Mark Goodman walks us through basically what's the reality of uh, the security and privacy paradigm of today. And Chuck and I have read this book. And normally, Chuck, you and I get to talk on a fairly regular basis. But for the last several weeks, we've been on like this hiatus. Um, I'm not allowed to talk to you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, self-imposed quarantine. Yes, yes. And it's annoying because this book uh, annoyed me. This was this was one of the most annoying books I've ever read. But I think we I think you and I are annoyed for very different reasons. So it's it, going to be curious. To, I'm curious to see. I, I was just annoyed because the book focuses so much on the negative of technology, of how everything's hackable. It's like my old college professors, like there's no product you can build that that we can't break its security. And it's like, yeah, I fundamentally know this stuff, but give me a break. Um, the fact that we have longer lifespans, the fact that we have you know all this stuff in front of us, we have a better uh, quality of living because of all this stuff. And it's only so hopefully going to get better. And this author was just a Debbie Downer, like page after page. I mean, I could not read this thing chapter after chapter because I just got so negative at points. Well, so this will come as no surprise to you. I, t- I tend to be a, a bit of a pessimist in this, in this relationship, Gunner. Yes. Uh, I'm generally a pessimist. This book was annoying to me because it was literally like reading my thoughts and everything I've been spouting for the past couple of years to anyone who would listen to me. And I was just rereading it going, but this is what I've been saying for so long. Yeah, I know you've been saying Apple is so much more secure than Android as yeah, long as I, I've known you. I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember <laughs> saying a lot of that. I'm going to be honest. My, my memories may be a little hazy, <laughs> but uh, but certainly all this other stuff of just, you know, in general, there, there was one really great message of just how it sort of behooves all of us in, in this day and age to not be entirely technically illiterate. Like it's actually dangerous. And I think that's that's one of the huge overarching messages in this book, and that's been my message forever. So yeah, I, I found it to be I found it to be annoying for for different reasons. It was, it was just it was like reading my own thoughts <laughs> for four hundred pages. I would I would go share with my wife. I'm like li- literally. I mean, there's a story in the book talking about live streaming raping of underage individuals, and it's like I just got mad. It's, it's dark. Like, yeah, there's I, some dark. It's, 
yeah. And it's like, I can't read this. And that's why I struggled so much to read this book where other books that we're going to do in this series, like I've literally have just like sat down and I couldn't put them down. But this book is like, it was just, it was, yeah, as you said, it's dark and it was just hard for me to read. So let's talk about that. I, I have kind of some high level bullet points that the book goes over. There's quite a few stories uh, of shared, you know, I think a lot of us know the more modern stories of the target hack. That is one that is talked about at length in the book. And, you know, Equifax, I think is probably one a little bit more a newer one than that. The, the thing that really got me or floored me, one of the stories is when he's talking about the, uh, what's it, uh, Aquarian? What's the one that's not Equifax? It's the, it's the other one. I can't remember the, the name of it off the top of my head. Um, but anyway, this, this company that, you know, very similar to Equifax basically just sold all of our data. Cause that's, I mean, that's their model, right? If you are a credit agency, you make money by collecting a bunch of data and then selling it to companies that want that data, right? So they get your credit credit score. Like Experian. Experian. Think yeah, that's the one I was looking for. And so in this case, it, they weren't hacked like Equifax was. Some crime group in Vietnam just wrote a check and said, you know, we, we want all this data. Yeah, and, I'd like to do some and, business with you. Why don't you hand yeah. that stuff over? And so they did. Right. Yeah. It's this crime syndicate that now has, I think it said three quarters of all American data. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> it makes me feel so safe uh, to know. This, that yeah. This is but a taste of stuff. what this book has in store for you. <laughs> uh, right. So a lot of the stuff. So there's a lot of conversation about uh, spy. I know I had a big shift in my own thinking towards the Snowden stuff. I was more looking at Snowden as this advocate for free speech. And I kind of saw him as a, a, a hero of sorts. And I, I know I'm not alone in that, but I also know there are people that strongly disagree with that. But this book really kind of put in a different perspective for me. Uh, and I'm hoping our, our, our guest might be able to talk about this a little bit as well. But if you think about it, you think of uh, a stealth bomber or something. Thing, right. Uh, we have Lockheed Martin. We've got a lot of these uh, DOD department places that are building these multi-billion dollar tools for to defend the country. I just I guess I never really connect the dot in my head that when you think of the, the tools of cyber terrorism, those are the tools that the NSA is building and they're you know, spending billions of dollars, just like we spend that type of money for bombs of, of some sort or another. And what Snowden did it just really made it more clear to me of how this is a, an act of treason. Maybe disagree or not, but it really came across very differently in reading this book because this is a tool that we spent tons of money defending our nation against zeros and ones that are going against our industry and against our company. I mean, there's so many stories of our you know fundamental things. There was a story about water. I think they were like trying to screw around with the, how much uh, fluoride is put in the water, which you know mm -hmm. could could kill you. And so you look at this and, and I just, that Snowden stuff, I or, really had to strengthen your teeth. I mean, let's be honest. Well, yeah. I mean, that's why it's there. Again, technology is good. The, <laughs> the book talks a lot about why the bad stuff that happens. Um, but anyway, the, that thing just really opened my eyes. And of course they talked about, you know, the foreign governments like Iran and China, North Korea and what they're doing uh, on a day in and day out basis. And I've kind of always known about this stuff. Yeah. I, I think this book brings a clarity to just how much risk there is, how much potential danger there is because fundamentally technology is so ingrained in our way of life now it literally permeates everything like literally everything is a computer you know everything you touch your toaster is a computer at this point which is cliche but tr but true you know like legitimately is there's a microprocessor in there for many many modern day toasters so i, I think <laughs> for the value of knowing your toast is done yeah. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> high value um but but i mean i think this book does it does do a good job of showing that right of, of showing those consequences and showing 
the risks that we as a society have put ourselves in by this rapid acceptance. I have, and I have a lot to say on this. Like, again, I think as we dig into this, I think there are some fundamental issues. Like we're just, you know, our reach sort of exceeds our grasp as a species uh, in some ways with, with the march of technology and the way we've chosen to use it. And there's a couple of key points on that that I think we'll dig into later that I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on. And before we take a break, a couple other points I want to make sure we talk about with, with our guest is, you know, this idea that there's nothing to hide. I know I've come from that standpoint. It's like, what the hell do I care what the government's doing, right? They can, they can see what I purchased because I purchased everything with a credit card. I know what's being tracked. They can see it. And I think the author makes a, a good argument that, look, privacy, you might say privacy is dead in many ways it is, but that doesn't mean it should be. And you, there is privacy. You wouldn't want someone live streaming you in the bathroom, right? You, I definitely wouldn't want, I mean, just so when I, a few minutes ago, when you texted me, you're like, you can hear me. I'm like, oh crap, I forgot to let, <laughs> yeah. let this thing We had a future crime in progress before the podcast. <laughs> right. Um, and it's like what I say to my wife, obviously I wouldn't want potential people to hear, right? I mean, wife is a very intimate conversation. Uh, and i vent to my wife often so when i'm when i'm just hating on you chuck that's who i talk to i don't that's, want you to hear that makes right? sense uh, so there I mean, are things that we want to hide right um and oh, well, like, I, I, there's another angle to that if i can jump in because sure. i also think even if you did nothing even if you did or said you were a you know, perfect angel um, in every action every thought and every word context is super important right i can take any three words that any person says and put them into a different context and make that person look like a monster no matter you know no matter what they oh, are yeah. and what they're doing and so just the ability to collect that stuff even if you have nothing to hide doesn't mean that it can't be spun and turned and used maliciously against you you know again context is super important i completely agree on that and, you know, this book has a lot of other things. Uh, we're going to dive into it more. But uh, before we do, I want to introduce uh, our guest today because this this um, book really covers a lot of security and privacy matters. And so I called a buddy of mine, Christian Hyatt. Uh, and Christian is uh, the founder of a security firm, a risk management firm here in Atlanta. He and I go back. Uh, we did our master's together. And uh, I, I often say to my wife and to anyone else that will listen to me that Christian is a mix of Thor and Captain America that's been genetically brought together and if you were to do that and then uh re increase or decrease the height by about six inches you get christian height uh, <laughs> so see christian there's my introduction for you buddy uh, but in all seriousness christian has uh an insane amount of background in security and privacy and he actually is an acting ciso for many firms around the u.s so um christian if you if you don't mind you want to hit on mute and uh jump in and introduce yourself a little bit yeah absolutely uh thanks gunner and chuck for having me uh, I was kind of chomping at the bit there. You guys are touching on some good stuff. I've, is there privacy if we have nothing to hide? Uh, the existential threat of privacy, Snowden, you guys are covering some good stuff. So uh, anxious to hop in here. Cool. Well, let's take a break real quick, Chuck and Christian. And when we come back, let's uh, dive deeper in a lot of these subjects. So we'll be right Sounds back. Good. All right, welcome back. With us is Chuck and Christian. And uh, we were just talking about a whole bunch of stuff in this Future Crimes book, but let's kind of start by focusing on one. Why don't we start with governments? And Christian, you've you've been muted for the first 15 minutes of the show. Why don't you uh, share a little bit about what are governments doing nefarious and otherwise that we should know about or don't know about? Sure. So 
Are you guys familiar with uh, GDPR at all? Yeah, I got notified by every website on Earth. Sounds about right. So I guess there's there's governments, you know, driving this from both sides. You have uh, some nefarious governments, uh, those that we know about, Russia or China, that uh, are doing a lot of the state state-driven cybersecurity events, including the U.S., that we're no doubt responsible for some of those as well. Um, and then you have the regulatory side of it where we're trying to get a, um, get some of that under control from a privacy perspective, uh, namely GDPR that's uh, a, a big privacy regulation that's been being driven out of the EU, and that's probably the most modern piece of legislation that we have. Uh, and now we're seeing the states implement some uh, different privacy and cyber cybersecurity regulations. You have the state of New York, uh, who's uh, implemented uh, a cybersecurity regulation uh, through the Department of, Department of Financial Services. And then you have California and Colorado who just released privacy ballots as well. So uh, companies are you know, trying to navigate both the EU legislation as well as the various state legislations. But we haven't seen anything from the federal government yet, though. Towards the end of the book, it talks about what we can do about this. So the book is like a hundred or a thousand pages of negative and like 10 pages of what we can do. Um, and in the end of the book, it actually talks about, uh, we need to leverage the government. So can you talk a little bit more about GDPR? Like, what is it for the, the listener that doesn't have a clue? Um, and how does it help us? Yeah. So I guess there's, there's two things here. Um, the EU, they've taken a proactive approach and, and GDPR is basically a piece of privacy legislation um, that's, that's hitting at companies that are doing, doing some very modern things with, with technology. Uh, one, one common example is, for example, uh, financial services companies might be automating decision-making around who gets a loan or who doesn't get a loan or uh, what kind of credit score you have or things like that. So they're saying, we have, as consumers, we have the right uh, to be forgotten. We have the right to understand how companies are using our da data. And we also have the expectation that they'll secure and protect that data. So GDPR covers the gamut of some of those things, whereas a lot of the US-based legislations more uh, is, is covering who is buying and selling data. Uh, and is it okay for them to do that? As well as are they securing some of that data? But uh, to me, there, there's some conflicts of interest with how much governments can do. Because uh, if you look at the U.S., for example, uh, th they benefit from a surveillance standpoint uh, from from some of the mass data collection. I think I read somewhere that the FBI has an office in, in Facebook, for example. So I think it's kind of one of those things that's, it's hard to legislate if there's an inherent incentive uh, to centralize that data. So I'm not sure how they're going to figure that out over the long run. Well, and there's, I mean, there is major benefits to that data collection. I mean, I don't think there's a, a week that goes by that I'm not hearing about DNA evidence being used to catch somebody because these people do the 23andMe and all these DNA tests. They're actually able to figure out who the parent was of this serial rapist. It is Minority Report and, you know, 1984. Yeah, I was going to jump in and say, you know, part of part of the takeaway I had from this book, which is, again, something I've, I've been saying for a while is, you know, this is talking about criminal organizations and how they do this and how companies like Facebook and the Googles and Apples of the world are are prime targets just because of the sheer volume of data they have and the value that it has. But I mean, my observation on that is, are, are the criminals the guys trying to break into those guys or are those guys the criminals? themselves? <laughs> like, are, aren't they already doing all the things with that data that he was worried that, the, you know, the criminals are going to do? Like we've We've handed over the keys to the kingdom. And as you're saying, Christian, like the government is somewhat complicit in in that act. And so expecting them 
to pass legislation to protect us that's potentially to their detriment as well because they, just like an advertiser, um, mines this data and gleans value from it. Yep. Um, so, so do they, and, and sometimes that data is used for good. And sometimes we just don't know what it's used for, right? Like there, there's, there's such strong incentives for companies to monetize this data that, especially if you look at the ecosystem, a lot of the modern companies that are, they're kind of in the startup phase, they're trying to figure out what new things they can do with this data or how they can monetize it. And for those companies, they're often funded. So there's a very strong profit motive and a, a very strong inclination to innovate quickly. So. You know, based on our experience, we work with a lot of these high growth and, and startup technology companies and the trajectory goes a lot of times they figure out capabilities or figure out ways to add value to this data and sell it or, or figure out something about someone and monetize that before they've considered the privacy implications. And that's pretty much across the board. So you have these small companies that have mass amounts of data. They figured out how to uh, monetize it, to structure it, to potentially invade someone's privacy and sell it. Uh, and then it's kind of, you're past the point of no return. And that happens again and again. I really liked at the end of the book, how it talked about these business models that you're talking about, Christian, that, you know, these business models have all, are all about advertising and collecting all this data. And at the end of the book, it, it questions that. It's like, how do we allow this to happen. He even does a math problem. It's like for every Facebook user, uh, it's like $8 in advertising. It's like, I would gladly pay $10 just to leave me alone. And I thought that's, that's a good point. I don't, it doesn't work because of networking effects and you know, people, people like free stuff. So ultimately I know that the business model, it doesn't work if you start charging for it, which sucks. But I did, I did enjoy at the end that he just talks about that this business model is just a broken model when it comes to security and privacy. Yeah. I mean, you look at your mobile phone and every app on your phone, uh, they ask for pretty much every piece of access that they can get down to your contacts and your geolocation information. And usually a lot of times they don't really know how they're going to use that. They just want to collect it and figure it out later. But if it's a free app and it makes your day a lot easier and you're not conscious of the privacy implications, you'll usually press accept and move on. I think part of the problem is we've been trained to do that for decades and decades. Um, you know, go back to any Windows installation. It's, you know, next, 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 okay, and go. And, and uh, you know, that was, and again, I don't know when there's an appropriate point. I, I think maybe we'll find it, but I would love to dive into that, that societal aspect of technology moving faster than, you know, biology and how we are literally not equipped to deal with this. And as soon as gamification entered the mainstream, when, when that code was sort of cracked, on how to hack human biology to make you feel good about something by giving you the right sort of inputs at the right times. Like our little monkey brains, uh, like we're done. And, and so we have these decades of being trained of just like, yeah, you know, you never read the EULA. I mean, who does? And, and it doesn't mean anything anyway, whether you do or you don't. But you're conditioned to just, yeah, I accept next, next, next. Just give me the thing. That didn't change when we got mobile phones. It got worse because it got even easier and convenient, you know, more convenient. And frankly, a lot of those details, those underlying details were hidden from us. We didn't know what we were accepting previously. We certainly early on in Android and things like that, you know, permissions were a little opaque. GDPR actually has, I like that piece of legislation. It's yet to be seen if that's going to be effective, but it has some mechanisms in it that's meant to address some of those issues. And specifically, they're pushing back on companies and saying, hey, it's your job to address these things. So for example, they want companies to have something called a data protection officer and also do something called a privacy impact assessment. So every time you bring a new product to market, the legislation, the words they use is that you should assess 
the impact to the rights and freedoms to the individual upon implementing this new service or this new technology. Now, companies are still figuring out what that means and how to interpret that. But I think the spirit of it is that you're supposed to make as a company those kind of decisions and think through, is this going to have any kind of implication to the end user? And I think that's interesting. That's an interesting take on a piece of legislation, um, but it's kind of up to each business and the regulatory bodies to enforce it. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, it's kind of an an anti-dark pattern. I think it's interesting. The book is all about uh, the the author constantly talks about Crime Inc. like it's a company. Yet here we are talking about actual companies that are not. That that was one point from earlier. (laughs) Like, how do you where do you draw that line? Because I because I think these guys are doing it like that's that's the modern day business model for the most valuable companies in the world right now. I thought it was fascinating. Like you guys just started talking about gamification and how uh, they've incentivized using gamification. Like one of the examples was porn sites. You know, go mm-hmm. go do this captcha thing, and when you do the captcha thing, you get access to free porn. Uh, but what you don't actually realize what's happening is that that captcha is actually forwarding to create some ghost uh, account somewhere else, so those ghost accounts can be used for criminal purposes. So actually, by gamifying, by using these things that can do good they can be used nefariously and that's what the book goes over i mean there's nothing like to your point you were saying earlier toasters it's like literally anything you can think of that's good about technology this the author found a way to like turn it around it's like no that's we can use that destroy the world right yeah mark goodman he he definitely is an alarmist uh as as i was reading the book there's he threw some things out there and i I would take a picture of the page and send it to one of our pen test guys and I, i would say is this actually possible and on more than one occasion, he was like, I, I don't think so. <laughs> Not the way he's describing it. Towards the end, when he starts talking about uh, the future, I'm just like, give me a break. <laughs> like some of the- see, yeah, see, okay. So that's that's where we differ, I think. I'm, I'm yeah, it, admittedly, some of it's a bit hyperbolic. But I do think it's, it's a very dangerous thing. He talks a lot about, um, you know, living in exponential times. And I do think, especially for the, the you know, person who's not in this industry and, and not spending time and understanding how this stuff works, um, that's a really hard concept to understand, but I think I, I do think we're there, and I do think there's that very real danger of looking, you know, looking to the left on that curve and going, well, it sure looks like things are moving in this very sort of natural linear progression. Um, you know, we can see the march of technology. Yeah, it's getting a little bit faster, but like, you know, we still got it. And then you look to the right, and it's it's near vertical. All of a sudden, you know, before you even know it, as soon as you turn your head around, you're like, whoa, didn't see that coming. Um, and I do think that there will be new risks, there will be new uh, capabilities with technology that is already in use today, things like AI, machine learning, and and even crypto, you know, um, not crypto, quantum computers doing crypto or, you know, cracking crypto that will pose very real threats. Like, again, we I think the timeline is debatable, how realistic that is. But I but I do feel that those are credible threats and and especially like AI machine learning, he makes a point of talking about how this stuff has gone 3D. You know, again, to go back to the toaster point, right? It's like when you have manufacturing robots and and other robots, you've got a Roomba, you know, something that can affect things in the physical space, which are also contain a computer, which are connected to the internet, which are hackable and and can be made to to do things. Um, you know, think about, you know, your cat being underfoot when you're walking down the stairs. What if I can put, you know, the Roomba up there at the top of the steps when you're coming up and you fall down the stairs, like as far fetched as it may be, I I think that premise of saying there, there are unforeseen threats or things that we, we generally understand, 
but we don't truly understand the scope and scale of how yeah. bad it's going to be in the future is is I don't know. I'm I'm not I'm not as big of a skeptic on that. I'm I'm more of a believer. I'm not a skeptic of you said far fetched. I don't believe it's far fetched. I just believe it's Let's go back to like the Equifax hack. If you're over 18 and you're living in the U.S., guess what? All of your private data is sitting on you know the dark web somewhere, yep. right? My social, all that stuff's on the dark web somewhere. But the thing is, that's I think 180 million people. So if someone were to specifically target me, it'd be like if I won the lottery. In fact, I probably have better odds of winning the lottery than someone specifically targeting me. It's not my skepticness of the actual event. It's just called me specifically being targeted, right? I realize it's out there. I realize it can be done, but again, and maybe this is a, a bad thing for me and maybe everything, everyone probably puts himself in the same category and there's like, yeah, that's true. But what's the chances of it happening to me? Yeah, I, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that at all. Actually. In fact, I, I would, I would almost go so far as to say that the only reason any of us have any reasonable expectation of privacy and any measure of security is kind of down to that law of averages. There's just so many damn people and so many things that the odds of you, any, you know, Joe off the street actively being targeted by somebody is so low. I mean, I'm sure we've all experienced, like I have a regular episode of credit card fraud probably every two to three years. Like I just need to get a new card for whatever reason, right? Like it's just law, like it's going to happen. There's nothing I can do. There's no way I could secure that to make that not happen. Uh, the info is out there. And it's just a matter of when they when they get to you, you know, when they come around. But yeah, I don't believe that I've ever been actively targeted or anything like that. And I don't believe that already will. But I think the capability to mass target becomes exponentially easier as as we go down this road as, you know, computer capabilities, networking uh, capabilities and the ability to amass process and glean meaningful information from massive amounts of data. Right. That's what machine learning is really good at doing can train it to find patterns and correlations that humans just don't. And to be able to use that at an unprecedented scale because of the capabilities of future compute, I do think that's like a, a real threat. Like there's a very real danger to see what we see today on a scale that we can't easily comprehend. Well, let's talk about that, but let's take a quick break and let's come back around. And let's talk about AI and mass targeting that you were just talking about. We'll be right back. So before we left, Chuck, you were talking about mass targeting, and that's something I want to dive into because that's one of the big things. I mean, I just said that, you know, what's chances of me being targeted? And we both agreed it's pretty low, but that's also the book talks about. It's not necessarily about just targeting me. It's about, you know, computers targeting everybody. Yeah, in, in the old days, it was about, you know, hitting a target because the effort involved to to pull off something was much higher. And so you had to, it had to be worth it. It had to be a high value target. But what the book discusses, and, and again, like I said, I think we've all experienced it. Like I have that regular credit card fraud thing, is that as compute power got cheaper, as networking got cheaper, as the ability to you know, host those things um, in different locations, and as the amount of information available on any given person became much more, you know, affordable from these mass sort of sell-offs from either a hack or even legitimate companies selling stuff, it suddenly became far more profitable to simply target many people for, you know, do microtransactions, right? Like just like in games, it became far easier to do millions of people for $1 and maybe get a million or $2 million than to try and target some billionaire guy and get, you know, a million dollars off of him. 
Yeah, it's um, not the Ocean's Eleven attack anymore. It's the uh, Superman. What is it? Superman Three is it? Three. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy, not a great film. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but that kind of, that idea has been used over and over. Yeah, you're you're kind of seeing economics at play here because if you think about it from a cyber criminal's perspective, if you will, if I go try to attack a, a large healthcare or system, the cost for me to attack that system is very low. Uh, and, and, and if I'm pervasive, if I'm persistent enough, I can probably get in, probably get some val- very valuable information. You know, health information is some of the most valuable information that you can sell. And but for that healthcare system, their cost structure is, you know, to add security, to add intrusion detection monitoring, to hire compliance people, to hire security professionals, consultants, third party. The cost is very high, and their margins are already fairly low. So, from a business perspective, how do you convince a CEO? that I want to spend, you know, millions of dollars to secure this data. That's a hard business case to make sometimes, uh, to really secure it. Now you can create the illusion of security or get by with compliance, but to actually secure it can be very expensive. So I don't see this problem going away because it'll always be that way for, for as long as I can see it, that there's always going to be a high incentive and it's always going to be very costly to secure. So until we figure out that equilibrium, it's going to be tough to solve. As my college professor would say, it doesn't matter how much you spend, it's never going to be secure, right? It's, I mean, the uh, example that he, got, I think, gave earlier in the book is that, you know, criminals are always the first one to get to the next thing, right? Criminals were the first ones to really use beepers and cell phones. Uh, they said, you know, when you give a cop a billy club, then they're going to they're gonna get the gun. When uh, they get a bulletproof vest, they do armor-piercing bullets, right? So these criminals, they have, you know, multi-billion dollar industry of being in front of our extremely underfunded counter efforts. It's inherently an asymmetric battle, right? Like fundamentally, if you're the defender in this world, the only way to be utterly and completely secure is to plug every single potential hole that there can be. And as we've seen with things, you know, in the modern era, like Spectre or Meltdown, um, things that target, you know, inherent hardware flaws that like there's no software, you can't patch against that or, you know, you can ultimately, but it's not going to be a quick turnaround and new unexpected attacks come up all the time. An attacker only needs one. Like you need to defend a million things that can go wrong. They only need to find one loophole to get in and, and whatever loophole they get in, the data that they get, the value doesn't change. It's not like if they come in one way that's hard or one way that's easy, the value of what they can get from you is any different. It's always the same to them. And so they're inherently incentivized to be more active in that because the, the value is there than the defender is potentially to protect it because we may not understand the value of what we're protecting. But it's it's asymmetric in the fact that you, as a defender, it's nearly impossible to patch every single like it's unknowable right like you don't you don't know what you don't know we're fixing it the security industry is figuring out some techniques so so one thing that we know is that there's a couple different types of attacks or attackers Um, one is state actors state actors are are advanced persistent threats those those people with the resources and time and money to you know consistently attack a a victim or a, a vector and those are almost impossible to stop over time but the kind that we mostly talk about is the individual and the individual attacker or the non-state funded advanced persistent threat. Usually they give up in about 24 hours. So yeah, they might be able to get some data, but we're talking about the mass exfiltration of data. And that's what companies are really worried about. So you can do some, uh, you set up a lot of tripwires so you can micro segment your networks or or set up different types of tools and technologies that will at least alert you when something's going on. That way they might get some data, but at least they won't mass exfiltrate. Um, so that's not a perfect solution, but it's a step in the right direction. So 
in the security world, the one thing they talk about is like, you know, IOT or as the author like to say the IOT, which drove me crazy every time. He said it. <laughs> <laughs> is, was I not the only one on that one? The IOT uh, that's coming online. I've read countless articles saying there's basically no security in these things. It's, it's just horrible at trying to uh, security. It's probably anti-security. Right. And you're opening the doors for all this stuff into your house, into your cars, all this kind of stuff. You know, the, the attacker these days, they may not even care about that specific device. Cause I mean, kind of a little stupid sensor on a toaster, as Chuck says, I'm not, not, that's not going to give me a lot of value, but the value going back to Chuck's, Chuck's topic on mass attacking, that's where the value is. Now I have, you know, potential millions of nodes and I can use those nodes to do uh, DDoS attacks or some other attack against some type of organization. I never know how you make money doing DDoS, though. They're, they're also an attack vector. Each each thing, you, hospitals are plagued with this. So everything that I attach to my network, um, you know, is, is an air, a surface area that I could try to get into. So if you're a hospital and you're doing a lot of IoT devices for monitoring for healthcare, or if you have your Roomba at the top of the stairs, it's probably connected to your wireless device. So if I can compromise that device, I can use that as a stepping stone to get to a router or to a wireless connection point, which is a stepping stone to the network at large. And, and as your intuition is picking up correctly, you know, those things are insecure. No one's securing all of the, the devices. So that problem's just getting worse. And that's the target hack. They came in through the HVAC system in the, you know, in the book they're talking about that. This might be a good segue because we're talking about how you secure this stuff technologically, right? How you lock this down and what you can do. But but I think we all know is the weakest link is us. <laughs> like it's the biological part that's the weakest. And, you know, we mentioned talking about AI and ML and things like that. And I think that's where the future of of compromising these systems will be. And this is I'm going to go I'm going to go way out here and then hopefully pull it back in. A lot of what we read today is not written by people. A lot of news articles. It's mm. it's machine generated. We all know the whole Facebook and fake news and, and things like that. Right. But it's it's true. There's just a lot of fake stuff out there, but people readily believe it. You know, one of the concepts he talked about in this book that really struck home for me was in screen. We trust. Yeah. Um, people just believe these are magic boxes. You know, they, they think everything that comes out of there is perfect. E-Harmony says, um, they're going to find your perfect match and you believe it when the reality is E-Harmony could literally just be going who reported their location within 20 miles of you go on a date. You guys are a great match, right? And eventually they're going to be right sooner or later, whether their algorithm is, is magic or not, but people believe that it is. People believe that they're getting an experience that was tailored specifically for them, that was perfectly crafted to achieve that outcome. And we talked about, you know, credit scores and all these things. They're all black boxes, but we all believe that they're working as intended. And the vast majority of the time, we, we all know all, all software is bad software. You know, they're barely working, if, if at all, uh, much less as intended. And so knowing that people have this inherent trust in things that are inherently untrustworthy and knowing that that's being generated by machines, by computers, a lot of that press copy, I think a really interesting hack is to simply, and, and this is my theory for like when AI takes over the world, it's not like the Terminator and launching nukes. It's going to be this. It's going to be just social manipulation. It's going to make us believe that we want to do a thing or this is the, the new great thing that we all need to be involved in. And people will blindly follow that because they believe what they read, right? If it's on a computer screen, clearly it's the truth. Um, and, and so that social compromise based on the exponential gains in machine learning and the ability to manipulate people, our understanding of gamification, things like deep fakes, 
where you can take video and, you know, take a, a mesh of one person's face and put it on another person's face and make a as good as any Hollywood uh, special effect level face swap. Like they did with the Obama video. Yeah. And, and make it look utterly convincing. There are certainly more nefarious uses for that that are already being <laughs> done. Like I can build a narrative. I could even craft it, you know, where I'm going back counter to what we said before, but I could craft it for a specific person if it's a really high value target and build a narrative in their Facebook feed, in their Instagram feed. Uh, I could put videos on YouTube that get into their recommended, uh, you know, video feed that speak a certain message. Like I can essentially gaslight them. I can build a reality around that with the power of, of machine learning and compromise that person. So no matter what we do technologically, like we are just these dumb piles of biological goo who are not yet ready for this. Like we have not evolved enough to deal with the technology around us and we will always be the weakest link. And, and Christian, I'm curious as to your thoughts on that, right? Like it's, you know, we're all in this industry. It's our job to sell the technological solution. You know, the answer, we believe that technology can solve anything, but I really think there's a fundamental disconnect in that curve that technology has taken versus the, the path that biology has taken. Yeah, I'll, I'll take off the security hat and, and put on the technologist hat. Um, and one thing that we talk about a lot in, in the security community is um, we're already seeing some of the stages of that um, just with children, you know, on their phone. Um, yep. And, and the their communication skills are degrading. Um, the way they even think is, is largely based on their favorite websites. Like you probably know someone who loves Reddit and You'll catch yep. them in the in the crowd, and they'll be regurgitating facts from Reddit or, or whatever. Communication skills: a lot of people can't carry on a conversation, especially uh, young kids, uh, or they can't have. So you're already seeing the way people think uh, in jeopardy, uh, just because yeah. of the limited use of language. I know the way my brain is wired has has changed from when I was in high school to today. I today I'm better at remembering where I learned that fact. Meaning I, my, I have more, my, my brain has become more of an indexed in that it knows that, oh, that was that article that I found on that one site. Right. But I don't necessarily remember like the specifics because back in the day, I mean, Chuck, you've had to do a bunch of certifications like I've had to do in my life. And, you know, Christian, you've got what, like CISSP or, or, and these are like regurgitating facts. And I've realized my brain has gotten worse at that, but better at knowing how to get to the fact I need to know quickly. I think it's the oral history. Like people used to have a strong oral tradition. So you remembered a story or your, your recall abilities were stronger, but now because we have Wikipedia, you don't have to dedicate really anything to memory. You can, we've kind of mm -hmm. modified our way of thinking and, and recalling memory based on technology. Problem solving is less about solving the problem and more about knowing where to go to find the solution to the problem. It's already exactly. been solved. Yeah. By yeah. I want to go back to that comment you, you, you were bringing up in screen we trust, and then you kind of brought it back to the human influence. Um, I want to go a different angle with that because I think of, uh, you know, the, the Stuxnet uh, virus that was used to attack Iran's uh, nuclear facilities. The, basically, I liked how the author put it, which was it's like any Ocean's Eleven or any heist video you've ever seen where they, they take the CCTV circuit and they use a loop, right? So now the security officer is seeing a loop of no one inside the vault, even though they're robbing the vault. It was basically the same thing in digital form. The, you know, the, the scientists working in these nuclear facilities are looking at the screens. The screens say everything's good green so they're like everything's fine but really in the background it's the it 
entire opposite what's going on. Like this, this virus is trying to kill this thing. And I thought that was really interesting in this idea of in screens we trust because we do trust everything, everything to, to a screen, right? To the point where if my picture shows up on some terrorist lifts walking through, I'm going to have guns in front, right? I mean, if something as simple as that, like, okay, this person's using a, some type of mobile device and through that mobile device, it shows my picture because I don't know, I don't know why it just, it's, it's hackable. And someone felt like doing it. That concept of, I believe this screen more than the human being in front of me because we've been trained to do that. And because, you know, 99.999% of the time that screen is accurate. Uh, why wouldn't you believe it? But that makes me think of like enemy of the state when they're, you know, making Will Smith, the bad guy and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's, it's scary to think that way. makes me want to become a Luddite. Well, Chuck was kind of talking about the, the existential threats of, of technology and, and kind of on a simple, a simple example we can think of today is everything's digital. So I kind of wonder how that's going to affect our political future in that will you, will you have to breed future politicians because everyone has dirt online. You have an email history, you have a chat history, you have photo history, you know, in 10 years from now, will, will every politician be bribable by the major tech companies because of something they have online? And will that create kind of a political future where only those groomed from birth to avoid that pitfall will be able to take office or, or lead or they go the way of Trump and not care. And, you know, that'll be the, the new type of politician. So that's kind of a weird future. I want to talk about that. But before we do, let's take our next break and come back. But I, I really want to talk specifically about really you're getting to the right to be forgotten or what I would say the right to change your mind. But uh, we'll talk about that when we come right back. So we were just talking about, actually, I forgot. Right. <laughs> what the hell were we talking Politicians, about? right to be forgotten. Right to be forgotten. Okay. I feel like when you track all of history of what someone said, you're incentivizing them to never change their mind. Because in politics, that would be flip-flopping, right? So you said this once upon a time, so you were an a-hole in high school, so you've got to be an a-hole now 20 years later. And that to me is fundamentally wrong. It's a somewhat tangential point on that. I, I want to get back to that, but again when we think about uh, ML or AI, because we talk about programming in um, biases and there are these programs to, to have, you know, artificial intelligence with morality, right? To put in morality. And one of the things I always laugh about with that, and I think your example really shows it, is um, any morality we put into it is a morality of today, of right now, right? The morality of 400 years ago uh, was very different, right? But everybody at that point in time was like, well, this is just, that's how it is, right? It's what everybody believes. Um, and when you talk about an AI that potentially could evolve um, over time to achieve a certain goal, and then you put in a certain ethics or morality, um, that's going to change over time. And it's going to change at a pace that, again, since most of these things are, you know, these neural nets and backpropagation and all this stuff, it's somewhat of a black box. We don't really know how it works. Um it's going to potentially change those ethics and, and mm. morals can get twisted in, in interesting ways. Uh, and so it, well, it always I mean, makes me laugh every... because it's like people have the right to change, but we forget, we think machines are going to be, you know, this perfect thing. And it's like, and, and even if the machine didn't change, the people might change around it. And we do have a right to change our minds. Like everybody evolves and, and changes. And so I think it's incredibly dangerous. I, I do think it's interesting to talk about the bias, inherent bias that may be put into the training of machine learning. But I think it's very, 
troublesome to talk about putting in ethics or putting in morals into a machine because inherently we know that's going to change. Like what is acceptable and what is... You can go on. I I can't wait for technology to enter the, or it has entered the realm of uh, kind of moral theory of absolutism versus, you know, relativity and morality. So that's a whole separate kind of conversation you could have. And then what, just to go back to what Gunnar was talking about, about the right to be forgotten and, you know, right to change your mind. I, I can tell you for sure that the right to be forgotten is, is basically a, a myth um, that, that won't happen technically because the cost of storage um, is, is going is so low and the incentives are so high to, to maintain it. And also it's just technically not feasible. Well, we have uh, GDPR has a right to be forgotten clause in it. So we're helping companies implement some of that. And, um, and companies that want to do it, they truly want to do it are ha- having difficulties tracking downward, you know, every piece of data that about you lives. There's backups, there's arch- networks that are architected in funny ways. So the, the data is almost certainly going to be out there. See, that just makes me want to be a Luddite. I mean, just, I mean, I don't use Facebook for the most part already. I've not used Twitter this much as I used to. And it, that's not the right approach. I, I shouldn't run away from technology, but at the same time, that kind of stuff just blows my mind that we can't we can't figure out a way to, you know, what uh, this is actually, I use something called tweet delete on my Twitter. So it shows I've only like tweeted a hundred times or something like, which is complete BS, but I do it because Twitter to me is uh, conscious thought. It's, you know, what's going on right now. And if you're not a part of that conscious thought going to what Chuck's point was earlier, you have no context of that conversation. So maybe tweet 15 of 30, out of context sounds freaking horrible. You know, there's, this is a a biblical thing. There, there's a passage in the Bible that says there is no God. (laughs) That's literally in the Bible. It says there is no God within context. It says some of you may say there is no God, but uh, out of context, it sounds a lot worse. And that's kind of how I feel like the, you know, with Twitter, it's like, man, this, you know, 10 years down the line, who's the guy that just lost his job. The guy from guardians of the galaxy, because it's something he said 10 years ago. Yeah, maybe we're in this weird transitional time where that that we can fall those pitfalls happen today. But I, I wonder if we'll evolve our way of thinking, you know, where people are allowed to be a little more authentic and maybe the, the society at large is a little more forgiving, understanding that, hey, a tweet's out of context or people have the right to change their mind. Uh, that's kind of the optimistic view. <laughs> that's the optimistic. Gosh, trust in society. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're very, you're very optimistic. <laughs> I don't oh, have that. Right. I, <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'm right. I don't know. Uh, I'm I'm kind of cynical about it, but you know, I don't see any other option. I think that uh, it seems to me technology is heading a trajectory, and I don't see there being less sharing. So maybe we'll just get over it. I don't know. I mean, uh, the Facebook stuff, all the negative press they've had lately. Apparently, they've had the biggest uh, deletions from I don't know what's below millennials, whatever that next generation is. They're starting to delete that crap now. Does that mean they're not sharing or does it just mean they're using a platform, a different yeah, platform? Probably. I would guess different platform. Yeah, it's, it's just shifted to a different platform. That, yeah. That's been underway anyway. I, I, I want to backtrack a little bit because I do find it comical, Gunner, that you're like, I tweet less and I do this. And it's like, but you still carry around your cell phone, which is I know, yeah, which I is know. giving away every bit as much information as anything else you might give. <laughs> More. But let's, yeah. so one thing, let's talk about that. Because, you know, the yeah. cell phone's always listening. My Alexa's always listening. My Google Home's always listening. I just want to call BS to that in the auth- from the author standpoint. Because, I mean, from a technical standpoint, 
He's just wrong. I say that it's, it's always listening the same as my kid is always listening to me. Does it actually hit my kid's eardrum and does it go into his ear? Yes. Does it actually compute into something? Absolutely not. I can assure you 99% of what I say around my kid does not compute. And that's when you're thinking about like right now, if I said Siri or if I said, okay, Google, or if I say uh, hello or echo, um, you know, they would respond, but there's basically two brains in those things. There's the wake word brain that is always listening, but that thing's brain is only good enough for the wake work. Kind of like my son, I have to say Lucas, but I have to say Lucas like five freaking times, but that's his wake word. And then the brain activates and then the rest of the stuff starts listening. And that's where I just kind of called BS to the, it's always listening because there's, it's fundamentally different. Can it be hacked? Absolutely. But by default, it is not always listening in the sense that people like to say it's always listening. It's more about the willingness of us to put cameras in our, right? Like what would people pay to get cameras all over your house and microphones all over your house? And, <laughs> and there was a time where we really valued not doing that. And that, that would have been an, an outrage, but terrible. And like now we willingly we put them all over. We throw them on our kids with baby monitors and stuff so that it's convenient for us, right? It, like, as soon as somebody spun that around and said, but think about what I can do for you. And we're like, oh, yeah, that, that is pretty nice. I can be I can go like do whatever and be be caught up in my screen that has my adult st stuff on it and then check in on my kid, too, on that same screen. Oh, that's amazing. I don't have to like sit with my kid and read him a story or anything. You're just going to give him a screen. I can go on my screen. Everybody wins. We we're like, yeah, give me give me that. Uh, give me that thing. Bring that into my house. I want to I want to have that. Of course, there are risks, you know, but I, I agree with you. Like, I, I, I want to believe maybe naively that, you know, the Googles and, and Amazons of the world, uh, it truly is that right. It's that it's that detection, hot word detection circuit and nothing is sent. Right. It is stored in the memory and then it's discarded continually. It's just a buffer that is checked and discarded. Um, but that buffer is there and, and all somebody needs to do is compromise that piece of gear and continually pull that buffer off. And it doesn't matter if you say the hot word or not you know, you're, you're done. It's that inherent, ever increasing risk, self-inflicted risk that we're all doing. Because like I said, we, we don't comprehend, you know, that the, the thing that I say to, and have been saying to all of my friends is, you know, you talk about being a Luddite and all that, but I think a lot of people are, and, and they, they do like, I know people who are really proud, like when they got their iPhones, it's like, Oh, I don't know anything about technology. You know, I just, my, my iPhone handles that, you know, they're, they're like proud to be, you know, ignorant of, of the tech, but then, but they, imagine themselves as tech savvy because I bought an iPhone or I bought this or I, I drive a Tesla. Um, therefore, like I'm, I'm savvy and hip on the latest things, but they boast about how they're not. And I, I it truly, it, it behooves us, all of us, to have some level of education. Like when I'm dropping in that new uh, Wi-Fi access point, you know, understanding what, what a guest network is and how it works and, and like, knowing just a little bit about what's going on because it's not just you you're putting at risk it's your family it's it's like everyone around you and all the things in your house and i don't think we have that i think we have a really really low uh, sort of global level of understanding of these boxes and of these screens uh, and that that's where that inherent trust you know comes from and we we welcome it as long as there's a as long as there's a carrot dangling in front of that thing I don't, uh, we're going to jump at it. I mean, what do we do? I, Christian, you're, you're the guy to answer that thing, but I know you answer it for an enterprise scale, but from a consumer scale, I mean, ultimately this book says you can't trust it, right? That's, that's the crux of the book. You can't trust any of this crap, but you can't turn into a Luddite either, right? You can't run away from it. 
you know, I try to do an, I try to do an experiment just to get away from Google. And I found that it's basically impossible for me to do my job without Google. Anyway, Christian consumers, do you have any suggestions uh, for them? Yeah. I don't think there's a lot you can do for your IOT devices, except for buy them or not buy them. But there's certainly some things that you can do to protect the stuff that matters, like your credit score, your health information, your logins, uh, your financial information. I mean, you can start by locking your credit so people can't open up credit cards on your behalf. When you go swipe, yeah, freeze your credit. When you go to a gas station, check the swiper to see if there's a skimmer on it. Uh, use use things like uh, LastPass or things like that to uh, have strong passwords. Uh, be aware of what you're logging into when you're on a, a guest network at the airport. So there's some blocking and tackling t- type of things that you can do to avoid most of the risk. But that's kind of from the cyber criminal. If you're really concerned about your privacy from an enterprise level or being you know, manipulated by Google or Amazon, that's, that's a totally different story. And I don't think today there's much you can do about that. Some good in there, some bad. Uh, let's take a break real quick and uh, we'll, we'll be right back. Welcome back. We've been going all over the place, but on break, we were chatting about something we haven't really talked about yet, which is uh, corporate espionage. I kind of wanted to bring it back because this should be an area where I think Christian is very much focused on. So hopefully he can share a little bit more uh, stories from the street, so to speak. But the use of malware to go after companies, which I, I have experienced with in my life, where you know you you show up to work as a system administrator one day and all of a sudden you got a black screen saying put in the code or we're gonna erase you know all your company's data. I think I experienced that almost a decade ago now. Very early aspect of that. Nowadays it's really easy to do because it's very easy to hide the payment through Bitcoin and similar cryptocurrencies. One of the interesting things that I think people aren't thinking about is it's cryptocurrency itself has kind of become two things uh, that I guess cyber criminals, if you want to call them that, are, are trying to do around cryptocurrency. One is they're uh, enjoying using other people's resources uh, to mine cryptocurrency. So more than once we found infected systems or per- even personal computers or large swaths of personal computers or networks that were doing nothing but mining cryptocurrency. Uh, on their behalf, which which was pretty interesting. The other way that cryptocurrencies coming into play is, uh, you guys have probably heard of ransomware, where someone you know hijacks your machine, encrypts it, and if you want to get your data back, you have to pay the ransom. And they're accepting uh, currency through crypto. So that's that's two of the areas that we're, we're definitely seeing an uptick. And a lot of a lot of major organizations, large and small, from small doctors' offices to the enterprise. Are, are kind of experiencing those things. So is cryptocurrency bad? There's two things on cryptocurrency. One, there's the blockchain that people, I think, conflate with cryptocurrency. So the blockchain is interesting. It has a lot of use cases and could definitely enhance security. And then there's cryptocurrency like Bitcoin or you know, the many companies that are doing initial coin offerings to fund themselves. I don't think it's inherently bad. Um, there's a lot of major companies that are taking Bitcoin online or that you can pay with Bitcoin. So uh, that's interesting. The exchange is interesting, but it's also used on the black market. So that's bad. It's, it's a little bit less traceable. So, yeah. My own question, I, I kind of see my own fallacy in, in my own question there, which is the, the book talks about the dark web and they say Google only, they say if the internet is the ocean, Google only gets you access to what is it? The top three inches of the ocean. Is that it? Or is it like the top three feet? Yeah, no, it's, I think it's like a couple inches. Yeah. Okay. It's like so, 1%. Yeah. So, less than 
I, I like that metaphor. Here's the ocean and, you know, a uh, couple first inches is all you actually see of it. So even my question of is Bitcoin bad, there are good uses of it. And I think the book talks about the, the positive uh, uses of it. You know, when you're fighting, let's say you're fighting a dictatorian, uh, a dictator, you're, you know, bad government, whatever. There are definitely negative uses, but there's good uses, but there's also this entire ocean of negative uses. I don't know. I kind of feel like the author looks at it. It's like, you know, this is all bad. This is all used for money laundering. But if you're going to say that, then shut down the internet, right? Because you, you've also made the argument in this book that 99% of the internet is dark internet and it's used for live streaming, raping of people. Those are, that's a real example. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. I know you guys know that, but I just want anyone listening to know that that's an actual example that he gives in the book. You know, there are terrible things on the internet and based on what the author is saying, most of the internet is terrible things, but we still get tremendous, you know, trillions of dollars of value out of the internet. So it can't, I mean, even if it is inherently bad, we still accept that it's got a lot of good. I think, I think that's probably wild speculation yeah. on his part. Like it's inherently the dark web. So I'm not sure if there's evidence to prove out that it's a significantly larger portion than the known internet or what its uses are for that matter. It could be video libraries or, or gaming ecosystems. I don't see any evidence pointing to it being inherently bad. Um, that's probably just his perspective. Well, I think it was the searchable internet. So such so as like my, I've got a NAS sitting in my office right now. That is not searchable. It's sitting behind a paywall. <laughs> wow. So I can pay you to search it? <laughs> You take Bitcoin? Um, it's sitting behind a password. And so you can't, you know, you can't have some robot crawl the whole thing and index it. So I think that's what he's talking about. Like it, there's a ton of IP from just about every company out there has got a, you know, some kind of wall between it and the internet. And so I think there is something to back that up. I don't think it's all, you know, this is my IP address to get to my kitty porn or this is how you build bombs type of thing. But it's a lot of it's probably just corporate data. People were figuring it out long before they were using Bitcoin as a method of transaction. So, you know, if it's not Bitcoin, it's probably something else. Uh, so that's not what concerns me about Bitcoin. I think what concerns me about it is its lack of stability. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it fluctuates quite a bit. Uh, and so I'd be hesitant to, to say one way or the other, you know, is it, it going to be here forever? Uh, I think it's been around long enough to probably say it's in some fashion it'll be here it's probably permanent but what shape that will take i think is anybody's guess at this point yeah and i like that you separated blockchain for bitcoin because blockchain to me i mean even though the book also talks about like everything else any technology can be used for for bad things but blockchain is a fundamental technology that can make that will make uh, massive inroads for pretty much everything we've talked about iot stuff ai um, blockchain is, you know, uh, distributed anything, what you want. Uh, we actually, we're going to have a, a conversation uh, in one of our podcasts with someone that's building a blockchain company. So there's a lot to be said on that subject alone. Chuck, I feel like I've cut you off a couple times though. No, that's okay. I, I'm, I'm just going to reiterate the same stuff. I mean, I, I think you guys had all the points that I was going to say, which is blockchain is good. Blockchain is an interesting and potentially really valuable technology. Um, the cryptocurrencies on top of it, are they inherently bad? I mean, no, it's tight. You know, it's, I, I hate to bring that as like a really charged topic or something, but it's like, you know, is it, is a gun inherently bad, right? It's what you use it for. Uh, if you're out shooting clay pigeons, uh, then a gun is not inherently bad. If you're out shooting, you know, people, then, uh, then it's not so good. Right. But is the gun bad or is the, the intent behind the usage, uh, bad? I, I, I don't think you can say cryptocurrency inherently is good or bad. 
about the only thing I would say is bad in Bitcoin is what Christian said is like, you know, potentially a bad investment. <laughs> uh, that's the bad part. So. so I had a question for Christian. Um, since the target hack, uh, since this Equifax hack, I like that the Facebook one was not a hack, right? It literally is just they, they paid to get the data. But since, since these things have occurred, would you say the security has improved, or, you know, just amongst these technology companies is it the same or is it, is this continuing to go down a, a negative spiral? I would say the attempt to become secure or allocate budget towards security has improved. We're yet to see if we've successfully secured anything as an industry. It's kind of interesting. The, the way the market works when there's a, a, you know, a very visible breach is that the leaders, you know, these companies decide a couple things. One, they say, I want to be secure. I want to stay out of the headlines. And the second question they ask is, are my vendors, all, all of the companies that are doing work for me and all of the SaaS platforms that I'm using, are they secure? So the market responds by, you know, hiring consultants and hiring security professionals to go, you know, make myself more secure and, and then go do audits and assessments to make sure my, my vendors are secure. And because vendors feel threats from the large companies, they're going to lose a contract if they don't, uh, you know, become secure. Uh, they follow suit and do that. So it's less, it's kind of, people, th I think, tend to think that it's regulatory driven, but it's really business to business driven. If a large bank or one of your huge clients, you know, say, hey, to do business with you, I need you to be secure and prove that you're doing that, you'll do it because you want to close that, you know, multi-million dollar contract. Rarely does a company decide on their own that they're going to, you know, take security seriously and allocate a lot of money to do that. Um, so it's really a business to business driver. So when you see those Target or Equifax, other large breaches happen, there's an uptick in visibility. So that does drive security. So I think we're headed in the right direction and, and leadership and these companies are starting to take security seriously and, and um, hire the right kind of people who can build security programs, have the technical and leadership acumen to do that. Um, so I'm quietly optimistic that, um, from a big company perspective, the security will slowly improve, but it's it's a cat and mouse game. Every time you come up with a solution, you know, the, the bad guys are innovative and they're figuring out how to get past it. So we'll see. Yeah, I can I can throw in something on that. I have 13 years of experience in retail and still have a, a network of people working in that industry. Um, and and yes, I can say that, you know, as you would imagine, there was there's the initial knee jerk of i just don't want to be next you know the as you said christian sort of the the bad press i don't want to be the next one and so there was there was sort of this rapid reaction and infusion but the the good news is there does seem to be at least a long tail of that right like it it what am i what am i trying to say uh, on average the level of awareness and willingness to spend and things like that goes up i think each time you have one of these major incidents it slightly ticks the baseline up a little bit you know practices or best practices that were, were not being put into place do get put into place. And then those just become standard operating procedure. And, you know, even if that's just a handful of things, if it raises that baseline from a, you know, 65% secure to a 72% yep. secure, um, when you talk about, you know, thousands of locations and hundreds of thousands or millions of devices um, that are potentially exploitable and the people and, you know, and, and the processes and all that, that couple percentage point uptick is is not insignificant. That's a meaningful gain uh, in the level of baseline security. And these events drive that forward. Um, yeah. Do you guys remember when uh, there was a blog that went out about, uh, 
I forgot who it was that got hacked, but someone learned that he needed to do two-factor authentication on his uh, Google account. But this was, I think it was Wired or someone that did this this blog, and Google actually showed the results of that. They had a massive uptick of two-factor authentication put on their Google accounts. And there's definitely, those type of events that occur definitely wake people up. Uh, to things like that. Even like what Christian was talking about, like freezing uh, your credit score. I know after the Equifax hack, I went and had to learn what all these, you know, credit agencies are and logged in, had to spend money, which pissed me off. They got hacked, but now I'm spending money to freeze yes, all these accounts. The problem. Yeah. It's right. they, I swear they made money by being hacked, but yeah, there's a lot to be said by, you know, just putting it out there and getting people to be aware of these things, which I mean, kind of, I think what this author's entire point is throughout this book, which I, I have a couple questions. I think uh, I have a good, good way to wrap this up, but I have a barrage of questions for Christian uh, for this. One of them is more me being silly. There's an example in the book that towards the end of the author's talking about what we do from here. And uh, the author talks about, we should build our systems. So they're designed for the impact. And so he says, if you think of it, you know, from a like biological perspective, a lizard is designed itself uh, to, you know, shed its tail uh, when a predator gets a hold of it so it can survive. And he says, companies should be built the same ways. And I, in my head, Christian, I was thinking, is that you? Because I feel like the CISO is the tail. <laughs> Thanks, man. Uh, so, so there's a concept in security and privacy called privacy by design or security by design. And, and the thinking here is that, you know, as you develop a system or build a network or architect, an, a, you know, a new piece of software, you use uh, secure coding techniques and then you're ethically hacking it along the way. So by its very design, it is secure rather than building it as fast as you can and then securing it later. Um, so there is some truth to that. The downside of that is even if you decide to do that, that's really only beneficial to new companies or new products. We have a, a hundred year old company, fortune 500 companies that, uh, are still running, you know, old IBM AS 400. AS 400. Yep. Yeah. And, and yes, we what do. are they going to do? <laughs> they, they can't, you know, maybe you could argue that that's more secure, but you know, they're still running old windows, 2003 servers somewhere or something like that. So that's not really beneficial to the companies, the, the majority of companies that exist today. But I, I do think that's possible. A lot of innovative startup companies, a lot of companies that uh, you see forming these incu uh, like startup incubators within larger companies are trying to solve complex problems with this security by design thinking. Um, so I think, you know, it, it'll happen. Uh, we'll get better. The internet is inherently uh, not meant to be a secure platform. It's meant to be for sharing. So we'll, uh, I think slowly we'll figure out how to close those gaps and, and build things that are more secure. It, it's just going to take a long time. Well, that's, that's a great answer, but I have other silly questions I want to ask. I use Netscape as my primary browser. Is that a good idea or a great idea? Probably wouldn't run <laughs> JavaScript at this point, so it's a great idea. I know. I actually was I was thinking it can't run like 99% of the internet. It probably is a good idea. Modern, modern CSS, modern <laughs> HTML5. You can't even run it, so you're probably protected. It's HTML, that's it. Yeah, if you really want to be secure, you should go get an old like uh, T-Mobile phone. Yeah. 
and do internet browsing from that. Uh, I use the same password on every site that I use. Good idea or great idea? Yeah, we'll go with bad idea. No, no, that's not the two answers you get. <laughs> it's good or great. I get a warning every day that says my OS has an update. I've clicked remind me tomorrow for at least three months. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? Little known fact, you should... You, uh, you're probably good to go now. You never want to be the first to click uh, update. You want to figure out if there's going to be a rollback. You read the same book I did. That's like that's his big thing that he says you need to apply those updates immediately. I just remember when I, when I was in IT, I had update Tuesdays from Microsoft, and it's just like hell no, you don't want to be the first person to click that. I've I've <laughs> done that, and there goes my SQL Server, right? So yeah, I think you mean you've been updating for three months. <laughs> well, that's yes, yeah, it's both yeah. actually. Both are true. And my final one, my, my password, my password for everything I use is one two three four five six. What? That's my password. Oh, anyway. Um, All right, guys. Uh, Christian, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Um, And again, for those of you listening, Christian Hyatt uh, is the, are you the owner, founder, CEO? I never know what to call you. He's my buddy. Uh, His website is risk360.com, which is actually the numeral or numeric three. So risk, the number three, and then 60 spelled out dot com uh, to learn more about his company. Uh, Christian, thanks so much for joining us. Chuck, you any closing thoughts before we wrap up? Yeah, I think um, despite being annoyed by this book and despite everything we talked about and sort of the, the fear mongering and, and everything, I do think it's I do think it's a great book for people to read. like never having read this before and having been telling everyone who will listen to me many of the things in this book and many of them not listening. Sometimes in that sense of that whole in screen we trust, sometimes if they just see it in writing from someone else, they're like, oh, well, this guy's an expert. You know, forget forget Chuck. Uh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. But this guy's an expert. Um, it may incentivize them to become more aware about their their own personal security and how to protect their privacy in this world that we live in. You know, it's crazy, um, techno, you know, exponential technology world we live in. I would I would highly recommend it for uh, anyone who's been looking for something like that, or if you've been curious to know kind of just how bad it is, right? It's bad. Yeah, it's pretty bad. And even where this book goes too far, it doesn't go super too far i i feel it's pretty accurate uh on much of the stuff it's a little bit outdated it's you know and and that's it's funny because it talks about things as recent as like 2014 or 20 whatever and it's already like yeah some of that's already wrong like especially some of the android stuff frankly but i i didn't want to get in i didn't want to get on that soapbox man um but like put you there for a future podcast yeah we'll have we'll definitely have a future one but it's it's a little bit outdated on some things but like I really would recommend it in the end. And if you liked some of the things you heard or some of the things we discussed, obviously the book goes into much more depth uh, on some of those things. And we went on some tangents, but uh, it's a good read from that point. If, if you know nothing about this, it's a real eye opener. It is. Yeah, it is a big eye opener too. I mean, to the point I wasn't kidding earlier on, like I could only read several pages at a time sometimes because it's just, I mean, it gets bad. And I'm, I didn't want to focus on that yeah. in the podcast is because it gets pretty dark in places to see uh, the nefarious uses uh, of our everyday devices. But to your point, it is eye opening is uh, often a good thing. Yep. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. I uh, hope you enjoyed the podcast and we'll see you next time. Thanks.